good evening, everyone, and welcome. This is going to be an evening of serious play about a myth. And it's going to be an evening in three parts. The first part is we're going to be inviting Alia Al-Zufi, who is a Lebanese actress and storyteller, to tell us the story of the case of the animals um, versus man in the court of the king of the jinn, if it's its full title. And then we are going to have a panel discussion. I'll introduce our panel speakers after the storytelling. And then we're going to have Q&A. And we've been told we can run over a bit. So this uh, whole event will probably keep on going beyond 8 o'clock because we know that the speakers are going to need that time up to 8 o'clock to speak. So this is... Uh, Alia, do you want to come forward? And I'll just keep talking while you, you come up to the stage, as it were. <laughs> so um, the story that we're going to hear is over a 1,000 years old. It came from India and arrived in Baghdad in Iraq in about, between about 960 and 980 AD, where it was written down by a group of philosophers, called Iqwan al-Safa. And it's a story which is part of the genre which is called Mirrors for Princes, which was developed in the Arab world from about the 8th century onwards. And these are stories in which um, rulers are taught good behavior. So they're stories about different scenarios and in which um, humans take on animal personae and they explore these scenarios through the, um, the dilemmas and, and through the story. And this really is a story um, which is a story about um, trying to remember, remembering in the face of forgetting. And the remembering is about all life is interconnected. And that really, in, in many ways, that's what the story is about. But we're going to have different um, views and perspectives on this brought to, um, brought to the table. So without more ado, Alia, would you like to... Tell the story to us. Far, far away. In a land beyond the oceans that we know today, and beyond any territory chartered by man, there was once a magical island called Balasan. And this island, in it, was so green, green beyond our imagination, and generous beyond our comprehension. And on it lived all breeds of animals, birds, insects, reptiles, as we know them, and more. Now, many a human ship had passed by the island, and some of their oars almost scuffed the earth of the island. But no one ever saw it. And therefore, no human had ever tread on it, for it was veiled by the shadows of King Boaz, King of the Spirits, Malikid Jinn. One day, a ruthless thunderstorm was sent down from the heavens, and it shook the ocean and all that was in it, including a large ship that carried humans from all over the world. And the next morning, the shipwreck, along with a few survivors, were washed ashore the island. When they woke up, the humans naturally went in to explore this island and see whether they would like to make it their new home. And they marveled at the plethora of plants and trees and flowers around them. And they were astounded by those animals that hopped, strolled, and grazed right past their feet unthreatened and unafraid. For a while, 
The humans built their houses and made this island their home. And they lived peacefully in their surroundings. But they grew greedy and they wanted more. Because the animals were so tame, it was easy to catch them and they were bound with tight, rough ropes. And because the animals were so trusting, it was easy to put them to work and they were made to carry humans' burdens, those oxen and camels and horses and donkeys. And the humans took wool and milk and fur from the cows, the goats and the sheep. And not only that, but after a while, the humans started to kill the animals for meat. And worse still, some of the cruelest of the humans started to hunt the animals pointlessly for sport. We must let our good king Biwaras know about this. Surely he does not mean for us to suffer in this way. We must let him know so that he may put a stop to this. And so the animals gathered themselves and they went to the center of the island where the new king Biwaras dwelt. And there they knew by their instinct that they had to cause a loud commotion so significant that it would bring the king of the spirits forth in the form of a visible being. So they huddled together and they brayed and they lowed and they bleated and they neighed and they quacked and they crowed and they bawled and they mooed, brayed and lowed, bleated and neighed, quacked and croaked, bawled and mooed, brayed and lowed, bleated and neighed, quacked and croaked, bawled and suddenly the air began to shiver and the leaves began to shake and tree barks twisted into awkward shapes and flowers opened their petals into gaping mouths and a light so strong, as strong as the sun gathered before their eyes so that they had to shield their eyes with feathered wings and furred paws. It was King Bilas. In the sky and in the earth and everything in between, there he was with his eyes large and green like the sea, and his hair purple and clotted into thunder cl clouds all above the animal. Now you can imagine this was quite a terrifying sight. So most of the animals went away and carried away, but we all know that Donkey is quite stubborn. So Donkey, being quite brave and stubborn, stepped forward and put forward the case of the animals to King Biwanasp, who listened intently. And when Donkey was finished, King Buarasp ordered that the humans be beckoned before him in his court the next day at daybreak. And he ordered the animals to bring representatives from all of their species to also be present and make their arguments. And then, knowing that this judgment was going to be a difficult one to make, he ordered all the jinn to be present at the court here so that they may act as his advisors. It was a long night, and neither animal nor human slept a wink. The humans staying up all night, preparing their arguments, and the animals sending messengers to each of the species so that they may bring forth the best speaker. Until, with the break of dawn, the animals and the humans stood in long rows underneath King Biwarasp's cloud that were his hair. And King Dumaras marveled at the diversity of the shapes and the colors 
and the sounds and the songs that he could see and hear. And though he was saddened by the conflict, in his belly he was happy, for he saw how wonderful and inventive nature was. And then, gathering himself together, he thundered. You know what you are here for, humans. What makes you think that you are so superior to the animals so that you treat them as you do? Make your case so that I may make my judgment too. And Thamar, the greediest of all the humans, was the first to step forward. Your Highness, we are humbled by your invitation, of course, and glad that we are here to finally see and meet you. Your Highness, of course, uh, we have reason and logic on our side. Certainly we are better than the animals. Uh, consider, Your Highness, our intelligence. The fact that we can build homes and the fact that we can write letters, the fact that we can communicate such complex ideas, write them down in books for these books to last hundreds, thousands of years after we ourselves are gone. Surely that is sufficient proof. Donkey stepped forward. You're so clever, said Donkey. If you were so clever, you would know that knowledge and intelligence comes in different forms. But look at the bee. You speak of builders. Why, the bee, it has such a knowledge of geometry, the way it builds its homes into neat compartments to store its food. You speak of intelligence. Surely you don't have the intelligence of the camel, who even at night without a single trickle of light, can find its way through the trickiest of tracks. The horse is the same. You speak of intelligence. What about the development of our young? Our young, when goats and sheep give birth, they run off to pasture, their newborns immediately run off to them, and they can recognize their mothers immediately. Your newborns? Why, they wouldn't know you from the person sitting next to you. They're quite dim, actually, your newborns. At that, Kibria, the most vain and arrogant of the humans, stepped forward and said, What? Your Highness, none of that. King Buras, just look at our bodies. Look at our beautiful, upright forms. Look at our refined features and our fine demeanor. Look at our hairless bodies. Just look, your highness. I don't need to say any more. Bah! said Sheep. You are beautiful, huh? First of all, we are all designed in the shape that fits us best. Your food is up in the fruit and trees, so we need to reach them. Our food is down on the ground, so we bend down towards them. As for your belief that you are so beautiful, well, quite frankly, we find you quite repulsive. Those skinny limbs and that hairless body. It's a good thing you put clothes on, otherwise it would be an unbearable sight. <laughs> and then, Thomas stepped forward. And Thomas, 
Fajr. Fajr was the gluttonous, the, the most gluttonous of all the humans. And he said, Your Highness, why look at us humans? We, we have souls, conscience, and understanding. We, we have purity of being. We, we treat the animals with such kindness. Look at us. We shelter them from the winds of the weather, from the heat and cold. We, we protect them from wild animals that might eat them. We feed them. We teach them new skills. And when they're old, we put them out to pasture. Now, how much kinder can you be than that? Nonsense, said Bull. You only do that to make the best use of us. Not because you are kind. You treat us with such cruelty. You take our milk, our wool, our fur. You make us carry heavy roads, uh, loads. You ride on us. You don't do it for our sake, but for yours. And if you, King Biwaras, were to see how we are held, you'd know that we're more like prisoners in custody. Zap, cretin, said B. Soul's conscience and understanding. <coughs> know, your highness, that these humans destroy our homes, take our honey, and drive out our young. And they dare speak of souls conscious and under. Well, you animals are worse, said Hunf, the most violent of the humans. Look at your, your meat-eating animals, and he motioned at Kalila, the jackal. Surely their actions are disgraceful. They tear the meat off our cattle. They break their bones with their sharp, sharp teeth and strong claws. What do you say to that? And Kalila, the jackal, jumped at the opportunity to speak. We only attack and eat wild animals. And even then we only eat enough to to make a living and stay alive. It is only when our habitats are encroached upon and the wildlife vanishes that we start to move to the edges of villages. But how ironic it is that you humans speak of our cruelty when you are the most bestial of all with one another, killing and injuring one another in wars, imprisoning one another, and then torturing each other in all sorts of horrible and terrifying manners. All the humans sunk their eyes to the ground, for they knew that what Kalila spoke was the truth. And the nightingale stepped forward and said, Listen, O king, to my truthful heart. Look how much harm these humans have done. The animals that they raise are not just for meat. They work them so hard that death appears sweet. Did not the one God create us all, then what makes them think they stand so tall? They say, you animals are worthless. We're smarter than you. But don't they see our, 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 our talents are innate? Well, theirs take years to inculcate. You fight, you quarrel, refuting all God's morals. You say that you know what's good from bad, but that is precisely what makes us so mad. To know but choose wrongly. That is your sin. Pray see all the world your sins <clears throat> And King Gorasp conferred with his advisors, the Jinn. And then he stepped forward and made his statement. I agree, he said, that the humans are indeed 
more intelligent than the animals. But it is precisely that which makes them more responsible. Humans must know that life is interconnected. And so, you humans, in any way that you act towards the animals, nature, and the earth, that will in turn be done unto you. Know that, humans. And know that should you err ever again, I shall set the following as signs. First, the animals will begin to disappear one by one. Second, the sky will weaken and the earth will reveal its nakedness to the sun. Third, the water in your streams and the rain in the sky will slowly turn undrinkable. And fourth, the air in your settlement and fortresses will become dangerous to breathe. These are the signs I shall set for you. But if not me turn out like that, wake up! Take responsibility. And the humans were grateful, for they knew that they were in the wrong. And hand shook wing, and wing shook hoof, and hoof shook claw, and claw shook hand, and the humans made a solemn promise, a vow, that they would never, ever err again with the animals and the earth. And that was a thousand years ago. look at the authors, the roots and the precursors to the story and the context in which the story was captured and how this story has endured until today. So who were the Ikhwan al-Safa? Well basically they were a secret association of Arab medieval philosophers and scholars in Basra and by retaining their anonymity and their esoteric work They've been described both as an obscure puzzle and a padlocked treasure. Now, although we can't pinpoint their true identity, we can paint a very strong picture of them by looking at their geographical, social, historical context, and of course, by looking at their work. Now, from their work, we know that they conducted meetings, that these meetings were secret, and that they were for the purpose of philosophical discussion, and they were at set times, on set days, and obviously at secret locations. We also know that they ascribed a hierarchy that described how they viewed spiritual development. And quite radically, we know that um, they, they put the hierarchy on four different levels. And at the top level, they had prophets and they had philosophers at the same 
um, rank. Um, I'd like to read a following quote, uh, which I think gives us further insight into the multitude of influences which really influenced uh, their mindset and, of course, uh, their work. It is how they define an ideal and morally perfect man. He is of East Persian derivation, of Arabic faith, Iraqi, that is Babylonian in education, Hebrew in astuteness, a disciple of Christ in conduct, as pious as a Syrian monk, a Greek in natural sciences, an Indian in the interpretation of mysteries, and above all, a Sufi or a mystic in his whole spiritual outlook. Now, in order to contextualize um, the Ikhwan and uh, the society that they operated in, um, we need to look at things from a geopolitical perspective. So let's start with the Abbasid Caliphate. Um, so the Abbasid Caliphate was the third Islamic Caliphate after the death of Muhammad, peace be upon him. The Islamic world that the Caliphate came into was huge. It encompassed a massive geographical sweep from Spain in the west to the borders of uh, India in the east. Now after they overthrew the Umayyad Caliphs, uh, in 750, the Abbasid dynasty moved the seat of power from Damascus to Baghdad, which incidentally uh, is a Sanskrit word that means gift uh, from God. Now, from there, Al-Mansur, who was the second uh, caliph, began a, a very vital project. And this was a state-sponsored translation movement that began with the founding of the Beit al-Hikmah, the House of Wisdom. This had a huge cultural impact on both the intellectual and the creative life of the Islamic world. You see, territorial expansion and conquest had basically enabled different knowledge bases to be brought together, concentrated in one area under Islamic rule. And so these knowledge bases obviously interacted. In this way, Greek philosophy and science and Persian and Indian law were pooled together. Now, these translators and polymaths because they weren't just translators, um, operated in a salon cultures. Um, so all these different religious backgrounds, and I mean um, Muslim, Christian, uh, Jewish, Zoroastrian, came together um, and interacted in free and open discussion. The only criteria was that they argued their point well and that it was in elegant Arabic. Now let's look at Basra. Basra was undoubtedly one of the great metropolises of medieval Islam. Situated as it was at the mouth of the Tigris and Euphrates near the Persian Gulf, it was known very much as a commercial, financial, industrial and agricultural hub. It is reported to have had an excess of 100,000 canals, 20,000 of which were navigable by ships of fairly large tonnage. And... Um, you know, it had di these canals provided um, direct links to Baghdad. Now, the financial center of Basra relied mostly on Jewish and Christian elements, and of course, on the non-Arab uh, middle class of Indians and Persians. It was also known for its arsenal, and it was also known for its cultivation of dates. It did use sl slaves from East Africa for uh, plantation work. Now. 
Not only was it a great metropolis in that sense, but it really was one of the great centers of learning in the Islamic world. I don't have enough time to, to go into detail, uh, but I can tell you that it was where Arabic grammar was codified for the first time, that it was home to great poets like Abu Nawas, early aesthetics like Hassan al-Basri, and the father of modern optics, Ibn al-Haytham. Now, it is in Basra that we can look how the roots of the story came together in this cosmopolitan environment. The translation movement that we talked about earlier fostered a, 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 a culture of research and innovation. And zoology and the natural sciences were not only developed uh, by Ibn Quraib al-Asma'i, but animals were the central theme of the first prose masterpiece in Arabic, Kalila wa Dimna. So the profoundly anthropomorphic uh, nature of the case owes a lot uh, to Kalila wa Dimna. Uh, Kalila and Dimna was in fact Indian animal fables called the Panchatantra that was translated by Ibn Mukaffa, uh, who died in 765. And he translated from Sanskrit to Arabic through Pahlavi. And Pahlavi was the Persian language at the time. Now, both the name Kalila and Dimna appear in the, in the case, in the debate. Uh, the beasts of prey um, are represented by the same jackal, Kalila, brother of Dimna. The Ikhwan really wanted to link um, the, their debate to Kalila wa Dimna. And I think this is exemplified, and many scholars have said the same, that uh, it was taken from a story in Kalila wa Dimna which was talking about a ring dove which through cooperation uh, and acting as faith, faithful friends, thus Ikhwan al-Safa, uh, they were freed from the ensnarement of a hunter's trap. Now, going a little bit further on, um, not only did Basra have Ibn Muqaffa, but he, they, he, uh, Basra also had al-Jahiz, uh, who died in 868. Now, he elevated prose to another level, but more importantly, his very, very important and unfinished work, The Book of Animals, uh, which was a seven-volume encyclopedia of describing 350 species, he was the first to speculate about the effect of the environment on animals and also the first to discuss uh, food chains. So I'm just going to look very briefly at a few of the factors that might have spurred the writing down of the story under two very broad headings, decline and conflict. Then I'm going to consider the specific context within which the story was included and for which the Ikhwan are known. So by the time of the Ikhwan, the Abbasid Caliphate, this great caliphate, um, was really very much uh, in decline politically. It was suffering from fragmentation and uh, a decentralization of power. Sectarianism was rife. There were two rival caliphates, in fact, the Fatimids in Egypt and the Umayyads in, in Al-Andalus in Spain. <coughs> Basra itself was ruled over by a Buyid uh, dynasty, um, and they had helped the Abbasids defeat an insurrection in Baghdad in 934, and as a result, were able to, over the next nine years, control most of Iran and Iraq. Basra itself had been devastated by its own slaves' rebellion in 871, and in 923 it was sacked by the Karmatians, who were a radical sect 
um, who even went so far as to kidnap the black stone uh, in the Kaaba in Mecca for some 20 years. So imagine what, how, what an acute and prolonged uh, embarrassment that was to the Abbasid uh, Caliphate. So obviously the anti-slavery and anti-war sentiment is echoed very strongly uh, in the story. And I just want to highlight that by reading a quote uh, from the story. They are our slaves, said the human representative. We are their owners. It is for us as their lords to judge them, for to, bear, to obey us is to obey God. And he who rebels against us is transgressing against God. Now, similar claims have been made by um, Muslim rulers, and the satiric impact of this, uh, of this statement would not have been lost on the audience um, of the Ikhwan. So now we're coming to the literary context. So the story came as part of the Rasail of the Ikhwan al-Safa, which was actually an encyclopedic corpus that tried to incorporate all knowledge in a comprehensive framework of 52 letters, epistles, Rasail. This is divided into four parts. The first part deals with the mathematical sciences, including geometry, music, and astronomy. The second deals with natural sciences, um, including physics, mineralogy, botany, and zoology. The third is psychological and intellectual sciences, such as cosmology and eschatology, the study of the end of the world. And the fourth was theological and religious sciences, such as prophecy, magic, and metaphysics. Each epistle or each letter very often begins with no, O brother, or no, O brethren. And the story or the case that we have just heard did not come as an independent narrative. Rather, it occupies a great part of the 22nd epistle, which was actually called on how the animals and their kinds are formed. Now, the diversity of the translation legacy is very much apparent uh, in the work, in the Rasa'id. Um, Greek, Persian, Indian, Buddhist, Zoroastrian, and Manichaean elements have been cited. And though the Rasa'id uses many fables um, to illustrate their points, we can say that the Rasa'id has little, if any, narrative that is actually designed for the pure entertainment of the reader. So the purpose of the Ikhwan in their undertaking, by their own definition, they felt that they wanted to bring to fruition the latent capabilities of man to bring him salvation and spiritual freedom. By educating in this fullest sense, he would be awakened to the great harmony and beauty of the universe and transgress the prison of material existence. In the first epistle, the Ikhwan urged the brother to read the ringdove story in, Ikhwan, in Kalila wa Dimna, and they are driving home their belief about the human need for mutual help and cooperation. <clears throat> now, the Ikhwan, by using fresh parallels to illustrate their message, I believe, affords the story strength, universality, and relevance, and has enabled different retellings through time. The Rasa'il themselves were studied widely all over the Islamic world. 
Yet the case is the most widely circulated epistle of the entire 52 uh, um, letters. The first translation was actually from Arabic to Hebrew and then to Latin. And it was undertaken by uh, a gentleman known in the West as Maestro Kahlo and in the East uh, as Kalimonos ben Kalimonos. And this was in 1316. And this was at the request of uh, the king of Anjou. The story itself has remained popular in Jewish literature well into the 20th century. Now the first known uh, printed version of the story was in Calcutta, in Arabic, in 1812. Yet this was 75 years before the first printing of the complete Rasael, which was undertaken in Bombay. Um, subsequently, in the second half of the 19th century, translations were made from Hindi to French to English. And it's at this point that Western scholarship really started uh, on the Ikhwan al-Safa. Now, I would like to end by sharing with you from the commentary of what I think is one of the most important uh, translations of the case uh, by a gentleman called Dr. Len Evan Goodman uh, in 1978. He calls uh, the story a 10th century ecological fable of the pure brethren of Basra. And in his commentary, he makes explicit links to uh, the story and what it is trying to convey with contemporary studies of ecology. From his commentary, he says, here is the source of tension which motivates the Ikhwan to the writing of their fable. All that is, is God's creation. And all that is joined together by bonds of continuity. But man sets himself apart, over and against all the rest of nature. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Zena. Now I'm going to invite Dr. Simon Lendin to come to the lectern. Simon is a reader in European philosophy and director of the Forum for European Philosophy here at the LSE. He also advises the Home Office Committee that regulates the use of animals in scientific experiments. And Simon is going to bring us up to the present day. Right. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> um, I'm going to talk a bit about animals and literature and science. Uh, one of the things that was stressed just then is the extent to which the story can be invoked as a way of refining our perception of our interconnectedness uh, of, the hum of hum humanity within a natural environment and so on, a natural order. But the story was clearly also appealed to allegorically. You mentioned the reference to slavery and also further in issues around cooperation. And as I understand it, the story's principal um, take-up, as it were, was not about how we treat animals, but how we should treat each other. And so it was a story primarily 
about an, an effort to alter our perceptions of human others and of human moral failure in that regard. The animals, to that extent, are ciphers and symbols rather than animals. And I think that's fine. Um, and I want to make first a, a very general point about what a compelling case might look like for an alteration in your moral perception. Lionel Shriver an hour ago talked about her novel as a political novel and what she wanted it to do would be to make a contribution to a change in the way American society thought about public health. And she clearly felt that writing a novel could make such a contribution and I think she's absolutely right but quite often we think that if you're writing about something you care about and want to change people's views about uh, slavery or uh, issues around cooperation or uh, abortion or whatever uh, that the thing that you've got to do is to um, make an argument like, like philosophers do you know, the kind of philosophical argument in which you try to make a rationally compelling case. And obviously, uh, the more scientific you might become, there'd also be issues around bringing in the best possible evidence. And you try to then to convince the other by the force of argument and the weight of evidence. Well, I sometimes wonder if any philosopher has ever convinced anybody in the world about anything. <laughs> and that's partly because I think that human beings aren't exclusively ratiocinative creatures. And if you appeal to exclusively ratiocinative capacities, you're not going to move them at all. And I think one of the great strengths of imaginative literature is that it provides an opportunity to push a human being in the place where they're capable of being pushed, that is, with respect to their imaginative capacities, where you can get something like the ima imaginative realisation, the becoming extremely vividly occupied with some uh, dimension of life, human life or whatever, and that it's through works of imaginative literature that you can successfully turn people round and alter moral perceptions. One of the areas, however, in which this is most difficult, where it's most difficult to make this case or to think well about it, is, in fact, the case of animals. Because very often in literature as we have here, the animals are anthropomorphic and so they're actually human beings. And so you're not really going to get people to uh, uh, see the requirement of treating an animal um, as some kind of fellow traveller, as it were, a fellow creature, if really what's being represented is not uh, a, a realistic conception of what it is to be an animal. And so we have a problem in literature, I think, with what I'll call the joke animal. And I want to now, just for a moment, to talk about the actual 
situation for animals, and particularly today, because I think that it is interesting the 1970s uh, commentary is deeply embedded in a modern period in which the question of the animal is to the fore rather than the allegorical dimension. The situation for animals today is, on the one hand, there are some animals which are given an almost interminable survival, cows, sheep and so on, bred interminably for human use, and then on the other hand, within that space, threats of extinction, where animals simply <coughs> disappear from the world and would never come back. So on the one hand you have that, that's going on. On the other hand, and paradoxically at the same time as this is happening within modernity, um, there's a transformation in our perception of our duties to animals. In the early Enlightenment, the only question that anybody would have thought worth asking about an animal would have been one which would sort of follow the work of Descartes to say, can they think? Can they think? And if they think, then that would give them a kind of moral status worth worrying about. But Jeremy Bentham, writing a couple of hundred years later, said the question is not can they think, but can they suffer? And so we have a growing tension within modernity, arising from, on the one hand, the growth of industrial-scale agriculture and depletion of animal habitats, and a simultaneous development of a general democratization of political culture, in which you get a movement of equality, and indeed, ultimately, a movement of equality beyond the human. Can they suffer? Our fellow creatures would then be seen as uh, beings w which have a moral status that we've got to take into account. So we have a site of tension within our culture. And it's particularly sharp in the case of animal experimentation. The debate that goes on in, in the wider culture seems to me to be divided in a, in a polarised way between, on the one hand, the evil vivisectionist and, on the other hand, the slightly mad animal rights activist. And uh, that binary can be represented in terms of questions of legality. If you were an evil vivisectionist, you would think that the only legislation that we should have is no legislation. And if you were a slightly mad animal rights activist, you might think that the only legislation that we could have would be abolition. And that there would be nothing in between those two views. The vivisectionist view, calling it that for the moment, but uh, it's, as it were, the one that would highlight the question, can they think, says that animals are without moral status. They are sensitive beings, yes, but they're sensitive beings like a sensitive instrument. 
rather than like a sensitive human being. So they're more, they're closer to being akin to uh, a thing than they are to being a person. And so the scientists will say welfare of the animals is absolutely crucial. You've got to look after them well, house them well, uh, care for their environment, just as you would a piece of very, very expensive equipment. So just as you wouldn't leave expensive equipment out in the rain, you don't abuse the animals under your care because they won't really work very well experimentally if they're all uh, close to death, for example. But, so welfare is an issue outside the experiment, but the scientist has no further concern for the animal's welfare in the experiment. On the contrary, there, there is no moral status at issue and it is up to the scientists to decide what can be done. The other side of the argument with the animal rights activists has tended to say that the animals have equal moral status to a human being. And so just as you wouldn't do certain things to a human being, so also you shouldn't do certain things to an animal or a non-human animal. Now this is one of the places I think that literature could play an enormous role in helping us to clarify our moral perceptions in this area. It could throw up dimensions of if you realistically imagine what's gone through by an animal or what's happening to animals in experimental conditions. Issues of pity, of regret and also of profound gratitude could be realised. But as I say, what we tend to have in our literatures are joke animals. And I think that young people, especially, I know, are confronted by, on the one hand, bagged up meat, and on the other hand, um, Walt Disney cartoons and, and the anthropomorphised animal. And it's very, very confusing. There are good works of literature on animals. I've brought one along with me today, J.M. Kurtz's book, The Lives of Animals, which I think is just utterly astonishing. But what, what, what we have in its place in Britain today is something I still think is worth having, which is a kind of operationalization of our intuitions about the moral status of animals within an experimental context in which the animals are regarded as having a moral status in the experiment. So, and just to tell you in the minute that remains for me, we have something in Britain called the three R's, which almost nobody knows anything about. It was introduced in the 19, late 1980s, and the uh, new Labour government in 97 made it um, a requirement of all licensing in Britain for work on animals, whether in industry or in education, that the three R's were, that the work was three R's compliant. And the three R's are first, reduction, which means that if you're going to use animals, use fewer. Can you use fewer? Refinement. That is, if you're going to do anything invasive, can you do it less invasively? And finally, replacement, which is, if you're thinking about using animals, think about not using animals. So the three R's now is part of experimental design. It's inside the design of uh, um, 
experimentation with animals and has moved us from a position where it's all or nothing to one where there is a space for work with experimentation with animals but not in an utterly careless way. Thank you. They are their very best. Uh, perfect. Okay. It's actually starting to turn out to be quite a bad evening. I, um, I missed the France Ireland rugby game coming up on the train. As a scientist, I discovered I was to follow a very good natural storyteller, and scientists aren't renowned for their storytelling abilities. And then when Zaina listed her kind of characteristics of a perfect male. I found it didn't tick even a single box. <laughs> so, I, um, so all in all, it's turning out to be quite bad. But nonetheless, let's, let's kick on. So biodiversity, a um, bit of a, a jargon word. Biological diversity, I think it's what in the old days we used to call nature, but we felt that was uh, far too clear and self-explicit. So let's think of a brand new term that might help to befuddle someone out there. So what do we mean by by biodiversity. Well, for us in WWF, it's the kind of usual suspects. It's the big, iconic, normally top of the food chain, generally kind of very endangered species here. Uh, tigers, rhinos, mountain gorillas. And I think we sometimes lose sight of numbers, of like why these things are important or why people like WWF sort of bang on about endangeredness and species extinction. But if you think about the mountain gorillas, there's about 700 of them left. And in the UK terms, that's, that wouldn't even really make a, a village. That's like a hamlet. And this is their global population, so something seriously is amiss. But if we talk about biological diversity in general, of course, it's far more than that. So I just want to give you just a few examples, and this is going to be a lot of pictures. And I, I make no, no excuses for that. And there are some extraordinarily beautiful things, whether it's in Madagascar moon moths, Satyatragopans up in the Himalayas, Davius in my back garden. There's the bizarre. Okay, the proboscis monkey from Borneo, and this is the male, they have a particularly enormous kind of pendulous nose, and if you're sitting down here, I apologise if you can't quite see them. They also, they, but actually, I have a lot of sympathy for these as an animal. I mean, they, okay, ugly as sin, let's, let's be fair. But the males are normally surrounded by a harem of females and spend most of their time sporting them, um, sporting. Um, so, so, and looks aren't everything. It gives all of us who, who are less good looking some some feeling. Sort of and this is a yeti crab. This was only found relatively recently in the deep waters south of Easter Island. So there's some stuff out there which is pretty cool. Again, this was found in the last couple of years. I'm a, I'm a biologist and I kind of pride myself in thinking that I, I can look at most things and think that is a such and such or such and such. You look at this and think, what on earth is, <laughs> what is going on here? It's, it's a type of worm found off Salibs in the last couple of years. 
the downright ugly. Okay, I'm, I was a bit miffed actually because I prepared this a couple of weeks ago and then this is the blobfish from Australian Tanzania. It was actually in the Metro, you know, the, the free newspaper, and I was I couldn't believe it. This was my kind of choice animal, and there it was, kind of. Yeah, this is like your preview of the talk. But actually, if you, if, I remember when I was a kid, my mum used to have a picture of herself in a bikini on the fridge. And it, was, it was a very flattering picture, to be honest. And every time she went there for an extra you know, bit of chocolate, she'd look at the picture of herself in a bikini and say, oh, no, I want the chocolate. I've got this next to my mirror. <laughs> so every time I wake up feeling pretty crummy and everything, I look at that and I think, actually, not doing, not, doing, not doing too bad. Not doing too bad. There's somebody out there which is doing far worse. So, yeah, a blobfish. Yeah, good. Okay, eye eyes and naked. I mean, this is, this is the real thing. This isn't kind of, this is a vivisectionist dream. This is what they look like, and they still get to mate. <laughs> biology, mysterious. But if we're talking about biology, of course, it's all things we don't want as well. This is the head of a mosquito. This is athlete's foot, for those of you who didn't immediately recognise it. <laughs> so we have to accept that out there, there are some extraordinary things, very sort of diverse, sort of kind of curious beasts out there. And uh, this is a literary event. So let me give you one, qu one quote. Okay, here we are. From so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have evolved. And I love that turn of phrase, endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful. If you don't recognise it, it's the final sentence of uh, Charles Darwin's Origin of Species. So it was written 150 years ago. Still, I, to me, that resonates today, and to me, that's what makes biology so special. That no matter where you look, there is something, whether it's a dahlia, whether it's your eye, whether it's your naked mole something out there which, which means something to me. Okay, and I think that's why, in a sense, people, no matter what scale, people can feel an empathy with nature. They can understand it. And that's why you know, people make their houses look beautiful. It's why you have flowers around the house, where you have window boxes. Why people would spend thousands going on safari here in Botswana. And why also. You have the kind of the NIMBY brigade. This is um, campaigning against wind farms in Cumbria. It's because people feel a certain empathy for their surroundings, but often that is their immediate surroundings. Their kind of horizon for what is nature, what is important, is within their kind of their sphere of, of knowledge, their, their own their own locality. And we'll come back to that later because I think that's one of the issues we need to come to. But nature gives us so much. And it gives us you know, it's a climate moderator. It gives us fresh water. It gives us food. This is a a stall in Nepal for f fresh fish. So nature gives us lots of stuff. So of course there's a good reason to selfishly want to take care of it because it gives something back to us. And it also gives us a huge amount of pleasure. Sh I, sh I stole this off the internet actually. So there was a National Trust photo competition recently which I entered a really bad photo for and didn't even get a commendation. I don't think they even noticed it to be honest. This was the winner and you look at it and I, I realise why mine didn't win actually. But, and this is, and that's, this is what nature does. This is what we, when we think about nature this is probably what we're thinking about. Somewhere which is spectacular and awesome. Somewhere where you want to be, where you want to be immersed. But nature's a lot more than that. It gives us stuff for free. This is a map of, of New York State. If you go up upstate New York, there's this area here, the Catskill Delaware watershed. The basis is where the rivers rise, and what the water there has been collected into reservoirs and lakes, and things. So it's all natural. And the reason the water there remains so so clear and so fresh is that they maintain the forests. So people don't do anything to those forests, other than they don't chop them down. As a result of that, nine million people in New York get one and a half billion gallons of water a day clean, which doesn't have to be filtrated, doesn't have to be treated, it's given freely by nature. And all you have to do 
To get that free water, that one and a half billion gallons of water per day, is just not chop down your forests. So they, but imagine if you chop them down and you had to pay for that filtration, if you had to do that artificially, how much you'd have to cost. But we never think about those costs. When we think about nature, we think about these things being given for free. It's our right and it's there in perpetuity. And it's not so. This is um, coral reefs of Florida. Coral reefs, yes, they're beautiful and they give us pleasure, but actually they have enormous economic value as well. And something like 10% of all fisheries around the whole world are dependent on coral. And then beyond that, for the deep water fisheries, probably a further 10% are, are reliant on these because these are excellent breeding grounds, hatcheries for the young fish. So destroy these, you destroy your fish stocks. And if you look at what's happening in the Caribbean, where we've lost more than half of our reefs in the last couple of decades, the amount of money they're getting from dive tourism alone, they estimate is something in the region of $300 million per year. So that's lost income because we didn't take sufficient care of the environment that we had available to us. <coughs> this isn't going to be one of those miserable, kind of, oh God, I feel depressed type talks. Okay, there was kind of a real positive bit at the end, of that, as far as I remember. Okay, okay. okay some weedy little grotty plant here. Uh, anyone know what this is? <laughs> okay, I, just, if you take the mic. <laughs> okay, okay, it's Artemisia andrea, and this spot on wormwood. And this has been used by the Chinese for 400 years as a, as a natural cure for, for, for malaria. And it's now, relatively recently, it's been picked up by people in, in the West, and we are also using it, and, it's, and it works extremely well. Okay, that might be a bit quirky. Here's this one little kind of scrubby little plant that does one cool thing. But if you look around the world, all pharmaceuticals available to us, something like half of all pharmaceuticals in the world are based on a natural product originally. If you take the top 25 products that they sell over the counter in the US, okay, the top 25 products, 10 of them were based on a natural product. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? So, in other words, nature is giving us those things, and there's some which are really important to us, and it's anti-cancer anti cures. A lot of the basis of the female contraceptive pill comes from plant material, so it has immediate significance for us. Okay, so there's probably a reason to be somewhat prudent then, because there's stuff out there. If you look at what we know about the world, surprisingly we know very little. We don't even know how many species there are on the planet. Some people estimate 10 million. I've heard estimates of 100 million, but clearly, because we don't know how many there are, we, we don't know how many there are. But, <laughs> but 10 million seems to be like a reasonable, a reasonable guess. We've only actually described, actually giving a name to, we've only labelled less than 2 million, and of all those, probably we know sort of a smidgen, about 100,000. So in other words, for the vast bulk of life out there, we don't know kind of what it is, we don't know what it does, we don't know how it inter interconnects, and we certainly don't know what potentially it could give to us. So really, would that be the wisest course of action to knowingly wipe out species when potentially they could be giving something back to us? Okay, okay, you have to memorize this. This is just, a, okay, this is, the point this is trying to make is, is the world is really complicated. And as scientists, I mean, I put my hand up here, I mean, we, tend to speak, we tend to study a species here. We have a lion specialist, a, a bug specialist, an you know, albatross specialist. But actually, all these things interconnect. And we really know almost next to nothing about these interconnections, other than they are, the interconnections are really important. It's a bit like that game um, Jenga, you know, with all the building blocks. So it's a bit like that. You can have that and you can pull out a block and nothing happens to the tower. So this is your food web. 
food web, food web. Yeah, you can even wipe out of crab. To be honest, no one's going to notice any difference. You might take out the odd halibut, something like that. No one's really going to make much difference because there are other things filling that slot. But like Jenga, eventually you will pull out one too many of those blocks and the tower will collapse. And there's no way of repairing that tower once it's gone. So again, it's almost it's a risky business to play with nature too much if we don't know what the consequences may be. And of course you compound that with emerging threats and we, um, climate change is a reality. Even the climate skeptics will, say, will acknowledge climate is warming. There are climate changes. This is from 2005. This is on the Amazon. This is clearly a huge boat which is meant to be ocean going. But in 2005 they had enormous droughts with the worst fires in, in recorded history. I'm not saying that will happen every year, but perhaps we can imagine that it would become more frequent. And the point I'm trying to make here is that so many of these things, when we, when we dabble, when we interfere, it gives consequences that we can't predict in advance because we simply don't understand the system well enough. Okay, all right, this second shot. Okay, anyone know what this one is? Oh, cool. Okay, okay. This, this one, okay, this is a spruce bark beetle. Okay, okay it's not terribly well known, I'll give you that. But this delightful beast lives in Alaska. And normally what happens is its numbers build up. If you have two hard winters, it kills off the larvae, and so numbers, the population tends to be stabilized. But over the last 30 years, temperatures in Alaska have gone up on average about two or three degrees, which means that over the winter, the young aren't being killed. The result of that is that in the last 50 years, this beast, and presumably his brothers and sisters and so on, have destroyed 40 million trees. It is the single biggest pest, bar none, in North American history. And it's because climate is no longer keeping its numbers under control. So what implications does that have for the economy and so on? Simply because things are changing in a way which we weren't able to predict. This is a, okay, it's a, very, it's a photo from the 1870s. So it's a bit fuzzy. Um, it's also fairly dodgy hats. Okay, this, you can't tell it, this is a pile of North American bison skulls. Okay? So we all know the story, you know, bisons roamed freely across the whole continent and so on. But they were, well, just, well almost taken to the point of uh, extermination. They're rebounding a little bit now. But these were going to be ground down to be used for fertilizers. And we can all look at that and throw up our hands in horror and say, that is extraordinarily stupid. It was not uh, far-sighted. But clearly, we don't act like that these days. Or do we? Okay? Maybe we do it in a slightly different way. This is, this is Amazon rainforest, or was. Okay? This is in Brazil. This is soy. So the forest has been cleared. It's been replaced by soy. In a sense, there's nothing wrong with that, because we all use soy in, in, our, in the food we eat. So we need it. Maybe the question is, is how do we produce that soy, and are we producing it the right way and in the right place, and also we have to ask ourselves, are we doing it at an acceptable cost? So whereas the people who own these farms, they get personal profit, the costs to the planet in terms of deforestation are felt by us all. And maybe we need to address the kind of the economic systems that we work in where we reward personal gain and maybe look a bit more at collective benefits or lack of collective benefits. This is Borneo, uh, extraordinary still to a large extent untouched, but increasingly if you go there, it's been replaced by oil palm. I was there in, in March and you can drive literally for hours at a time and you're just passing through palm oil plantations. And you can understand why. 
it is phenomenally lucrative. It really brings money into the local community. And, you know, far and away above anything else they could ever hope to get. So of course they will go. They call it black gold sometimes because it's so, so lucrative. But they've cleared so much of this stuff and most, of it is, most oil plant comes from Indonesia and Malaysia. Indonesia now is the third biggest greenhouse gas emitter after China and America. Not because of its industry, but because it clears so much rainforest for palm oil. So again, in a sense, they are getting a local gain, but at cost to the planet. And how do we respond to that? I realise we only use two-minute signs things here. Okay, so basically, basically, the point is, we sometimes we have these things out of sight, out of mind. Right here in the UK, we tend to outsource a huge amount of our production. A lot of the clothes we wear, the food we eat, the cars we drive, the telephones we use, they're made somewhere else. And quite often, we're just simply not aware of the impact of that production is having elsewhere because it's a long way away and you will never ever see it. And somehow we need to make that reconnection. We like to pride ourselves in being homo sapiens. We are the, the wise ape. These are the, the plaques they put on the Pioneer spacecraft back in the early 70s and then zing them off into space so that if some, some extraterrestrial will stumble across the spacecraft, they will know first of all what we look like, or was it um, tall, upright, and very unpleasantly naked and hairless. Okay, tells us where we live and all this kind of real clever geek stuff so they can come and find us. So that's how clever we are. And almost 40 years, 40 years ago, we were whacking this off, off into space and saying, look, we are clever, look, here we are. But are we clever enough to have wise stewardship of the planet on which we live? And I would say that in many senses, we're very clever at manipulating the environment and maximizing the pr production from that environment, but are we doing it in a way which makes sense for all of us? And more importantly, are we doing it in a way which is important for, for our future? And let's not forget, we, we live on one planet. We, it's a finite space. And this planet has finite resources on it. There's only so much gold, there's only so much fresh water, there's only so much fish. Okay, you can breathe fish. There's only so much of everything. And as human populations increase, how do we manage it sensibly so that it's both equitable and it's sustainable? Okay, and I'd just like to leave you, because it's a literary festival, with another quote. This is, it's not, I've never seen this positively attributed. People say it was attributed to a North American uh, tribal leader. I'll read it out for those of you who can't read it. <laughs> only when the last tree is cut, and only when the last river is polluted, only when the last fish is caught, will they realise that you can't eat money. And to me, that is a really simple, but a really self-evident truth. But I would say that perhaps it's a truth that we've forgotten, and it's about time we re-remembered it. Thank you very much.
Um, it's, rather, it's rather difficult to go last, I must say, after such a feast and such a spread. But I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to go back a little bit in terms of the structure because I'm going to pick up on the story, the animal's lawsuit. And I'm actually going to um, sort of talk a little bit of this, um, in response to the comment Simon made about what imaginative literature can do. Um, turning the tables on someone more powerful it encapsulates comic cunning. The, to get the biter bit is the aim of the trickster, the clown, the stand-up comic. Humor presents the underdog with a weapon. In the tradition of animal fabulism, the animals who outwit, or sometimes overcome, in the end, their oppressors aren't inevitably the big noble ones, the eagle, the wise elephant, the lion king, the gorilla, or the bear, but the lower, more paltry, sometimes despised, even shunned creatures. I think some of them turned up in marks, um, and you probably recognize, of course, you recognize the sort of joke monsters that children love. Anyway, these, are, these low creatures are carrion eaters, crows and jackals, and the latter's American counterpart, coyote, the snake, the ant, the dung beetle, little monkeys rather than the big apes, the wolf, the ant, the louse, and the flea, and as in the animal's lawsuit, donkeys, wasps, and crickets. The last, as singer, entertainer, and merrymaker, the hero of the fabulous genre, and the alter ego of the storyteller. In legends around, arising around the figure of King Solomon, and here you see him with his, the, court, the court of the animals and the jinn, um, he has the gift of understanding the language of birds and beasts, and he comes to realize the meagerness of his possessions and territory and the scantiness of the numbers of his subjects when he nearly treads on the queen of the ants, and he hears her warning her her people to get away, get out of the way of Solomon who's about to land on his flying carpet. And by doing so, she reveals to him the vast host and the busyness of her people in contrast to his. And Solomon acknowledges the greater dimensions of the ants' universe. The animal's lawsuit features a large cast, but the point is made. The huge presence and assumed superiority of the human animal needs to be shown up by creatures who aren't valued in the human ranking of things. So I thought I'd try and throw light on two aspects of animal fables and the larger body of mythological literature which they characteristically belong to. First, the story's assumed active effect on the thinking and behavior of strong men, rulers, and powers in general. Is it the uh, arrow? Arrow, thank you. This is another picture of Solomon. You'll remember, you need, you need only remember how Scheherazade tells her tales night after night many of them featuring animals and recasting the plea before the bar against humanity. In fact, on the 142nd night, she starts for about a week um, telling very eloquently the same stories that appear in the animal's lawsuit in a slightly different recast fashion. And the um, editions comment that the Arabic of that particular part of the Arabian Nights is more beautiful and more, um, more, more scholarly and eloquent because it obviously comes from the antecedents you, you were talking about. The Arabian Nights being written down later. Scheherazade is spinning ransom tales. She's trying to forestall her own death, yes, but also to calm the Sultan's murderous rage from claiming her life and the life of all other women, as he has threatened to do. This axiom, which parables, fa fables, and fairy tales, the narrative modes that make up wisdom literature, that they can exercise real influence, needs to be remembered. 
let's have a tale for today from storytellers of no religious allegiance. I'm thinking of thought for today. <laughs> uh, with animals speaking truth to power. Secondly, though animals plead the course of justice and survival, um, and in stories that feature all over the world from time immemorial, a change has taken place recently, which, um, re which um, reflects the ecological and philosophical thinking that we've been hearing about tonight. Animals used to be disguises for different human tendencies. This was Simon's point. Even when weasels were weaselly and foxes foxy, they were mirroring back to us humans human characteristics. But now the sense of growing apartness from nature has inspired um, us to transvalue animals and to think of them differently. And it has led to a deep hankering for identification and to closing the distance socially and philosophically established between us and them. And I think this trend is captured by the spread and acceptance in culture today of the idea of shamanism. This has been taking place, I think, since the 60s. Um, this is a shaman's crown from the Pitt Rivers Museum uh, with the deer antlers symbolizing the shaman's, um, Siberian shaman's relationship to the deer. Um, and um, when you th whenever you think, whatever you think of this, um, I mean, you may th recoil, soft, wacky, hippie, new agey, the shaman and the shamanic reverse the relationship, no longer animals becoming human, but humans becoming animal a metamorphosis that entails revivifying recognition of shared nature. So first animal fable in politics, Aesop, the oldest name that has survived as a storyteller alongside Homer. By, co by contrast to Homer, Aesop is comic, a clown, a fool. His stories tell anecdotes about animals. They're glinting with hard ironies, packed with common sense and survivors' cunning and craft and malice. They're inhabited by the poor creatures I mentioned, by dogs and monkeys, frogs and mice, foxes and rats. Aesop's fables poke fun at those who rule the roost. This is a literature of cunning and high spirits, in Benjamin's um, comment, directed against the pomposities and vanities of rulers and judges. They are stories that form the basis of proverbial wisdom literature, and their wry, skewed morals have shaped a million adages and sayings the world over. Dog in the manger, sour grapes, the biter bit, borrowed plumage, crying wolf, once bitten, twice shy, in the skin of a lion, let sleeping dogs lie, blowing hot and cold, one swallow does not make a summer. All these, all these phrases in many different languages relate to fables told in the Bhatshatantra, told in Aesop, and told in the Arabian Nights, and so on. By speaking and telling stories, by performing, the caprices of existence can be understood a little better. The fables aren't always straightforward. Things will be duller if they were. You can't always tell where the moral is going to point. They spring surprises. They tell it slant. But the point of putting on an animal mask is a way of tackling folly and vice and of making a throw against fate. Aesop wasn't blind like Homer, but the legends that sprung up about him describe how he was a slave and handicapped by such a dreadful stammer he seemed to be an idiot. The poet who drew on animal imagery, low imagery, to express the human condition himself refracts human misprisioning, our failure to see value where value lies. In the 19th century, one Victorian commentator wrote, wrote about Aesop. His complexion was so swarthy that he took his name from it. Aesop and Ethiop, according to their account, signifying the same thing. But inside this outcast, this stigmatized and abject figure has a quick tongue and a caustic and brilliant mind. The goddess, in one's version, eventually takes pity on him and restores his powers of fluent speech. 
and he begins to entertain his master with his cunning tricks and clever reposts. When his master, Xanthus, one day orders Aesop to prepare the best banquet available, Aesop serves four courses of tongues, all differently dressed. Xanthus falls into an outrageous passion and starts beating poor Aesop, who responds, Sir, you charged me to make the best entertainment I could, and if the tongue be the key of knowledge, what could be so proper as a feast of tongues for a philosophical banquet? <laughs> Aesop's gifts in this regard make him the counterpart of such tricksters as Anansi, the spider from Yoruba folklore, Coyote of the Navajo repertory, and of Br'er Rabbit, their American cousin. In many ways, this legendary Aesop is the generic precursor of the signifying monkey, who by flighting, by repartee, by doing the dozens, reverses his low status. Aesop is a mythic character. He borrows Eastern dress and tells stories from India, and he's the earliest figure in classical Western culture to use stories, art, and language as instruments of knowledge, as defensive weapons in the struggle for survival. Now to the rise of shamanism, a word that enters European languages mostly in the 18th century after explorers returned from Siberia and Mongolia and brought back stories of the nomadic tribes, rituals, dances, dream beliefs, and drumming. And this is one of the earliest woodcuts, as you see, and showing a shaman drumming himself into a state of um, you know, hyper-consciousness, losing, losing into, into, into trance. From its specific regional origins, shamans spread to describe priests and storytellers in many other cultures and gradually naturalized here. This is one of the first full shamanic costumes brought to Europe um, from Siberia in the 18th century. Um, though, though submitting themselves to harsh, through submitting themselves to harsh ascetic rituals, shamans enter an animal form and return with enhanced understanding. This process has become for many today the model for rekindling consciousness of natural relations. Joseph Boyce was one of the first influential artists. Now that's, sorry, I was saying that it spread. This is now described in the British Museum catalogue as a shaman, and of course it's a Colombian, it's from Central America. The word has spread from its origins in Russia, um, right across the world. Um, there's a Russian shaman. There's a drum. The, the, the drum is a very important part of the um, <coughs> attempt to produce ecstasy and, and trance. Uh, this is for, all from the, American, the Museum of the American Indian in Washington so it, it, because it's become naturalized within the American Indian cult cultures, a word being borrowed in. Another shamanic drum with um, hieroglyphs, another one. These are all from, there's, there's Joseph Boyce uh, um, in his piece, 1970, Coyote, with a real animal, um, but enacting his um, initiation into a kind of natural heightened consciousness. Um, and Calvino, I mean, I'm just putting them, bringing them in because they're not, they're, they're kind of serious, these are serious thinkers. And, you know, Italo Calvino, at the end of his life, um, which around the end of the millennium, explicitly evoked the shaman as the writer's double. I'm a, in the famous quotation, I'm accustomed to consider literature a search for knowledge. In order to move onto existential ground, I have to think of literature as extended to anthropology and ethnology and mythology. Faced with the precarious existence of tribal life, drought, sickness, evil influences, the shaman responded by ridding his body of weight and flying to another world, another level of perception where he could find the strength to change the face of reality. These visions were part of the folk imagination, or we might say of lived experience. It is this anthropological device that literature perpetuates. 
the Swiss artist Fischli Weiss expressed both these approaches, the kind of mock satirical, which Simon mentioned, joke, um, sorry, animal masquerade, and also this yearning for the shamanic identification. Um, dressed as rat and bear, that, oh, that's a, 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 um, a book that came out that was very, very influential um, in the 60s, part of the, here they are, rat and bear. Um, both um, in padded clumsy costumes they strike comical Aesopian figures in their ugliness but the films they make starring their animal alter egos mock themselves and human society with ruthless wit in the right way a film made nearly 20 years ago this is is not the right way this is from obviously in some beautiful palace and so I think the relationship is rather similar the Aesopian relationship Um, here they are (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right and there. Um, and, um, in the right way uh, they, uh, they trek through sublime mountain scenery, potholes and waterfalls valley floors and snowy wildernesses to a peak where they drum up the sunrise ritualistically and it's playing at the moment at the ICA if you want to see it so to conclude, as Levi Strauss so famously wrote in his Reflections on Animal Totemism Natural species are not chosen because they're good to eat, but because they're good to think with. The mask of a beast gives us a way of thinking. We peer through it to see established codes of conduct in human society, the courts of princes, the contemporary art world, and we receive the messages ironically. Animal fables indeed provide some of the most brilliant and fundamental lessons in irony, for our sympathies are aroused to run counter, often to the manifest cynical lesson of the fable. So let's turn ourselves into rats and jackals, into ants and mice, and keep provoking the princes with stories in which they might recognise their pride and their folly.